See, that feels right, right? Yeah, that that was definitely right. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And uh, we have made it into the month of August. And so naturally in the month of August, we thought, you know, Cody, we're in the heart of the uh, offseason. Let's talk about the best defensive players of the last 15 years. And, um, you know, maybe we will pick like a top eight by position. Does that seem like a nice even number? Does it seem like a good way to do it? <laughs> I mean, it's it's quite literally an even number. Why, why eight, Ben? Why did you decide to settle on, on eight of all numbers? Okay, well, that's, I'm very glad you asked. Eight <laughs> is very important. Ten, ten feels like too many, and five feels like too few. Uh, because I think the way we want to do this is we want to sort of have a discussion about defense and about how defense has changed over the last 15 years and what has made some of these players the most successful defenders in our estimation. Uh, Defense is obviously the squishiest thing to try to evaluate in basketball. The defensive stats historically have been very sparse, very limited, sometimes misleading. And uh, we have more data now, but it's still something that at least in my process and my assessment is a very, very difficult thing to pinpoint without a lot of understanding of context and a lot of film study and trying to map up some of the limited statistics we do have. Uh, And even then you're saying like, you know, how super confident am I? Maybe you're fairly confident, but it's just a different animal than evaluating offense where we just have so many measuring tools uh, it's very clear to see, you know, who has the basketball, um, who's setting a screen, what the what the offense is dictating. And in defense, uh, it's 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 not an inverse one to one thing. There isn't one guy trying to stop the basketball. Defense is really like a five man unit that's working together. Um, of course, as I say that, I mean offense does that as well. But it's just trust me, it's different. It's it's different. <laughs> A a couple of things, too, that make it particularly interesting. You touched on one of them already. The statistical part of it is fascinating because we do have play-by-play data going back, you know, the last 20-some years. But then we also have, like, a little bit more kinds of data starting in, like, 2012, 2013, 2014 that includes, like, rim protection numbers. You have RAPM stats and stuff like that. So if we're doing the last 15 years... There's actually like a couple year gap from like 2008 to like 2012-ish, or there's a couple players where like you don't quite have as much statistical evidence that you have for these other players that have been playing for the last decade. So it's interesting to try and skew that or try and correct your thinking that way. The other thing that's different, we've talked about quite a bit, Ben. The NBA has changed significantly over the last 15 years, significantly, especially on the offensive side and the way that different offenses and defensive schemes work and things like that. So it's difficult to try and like not take a player and be like, oh, what would they look like in today's NBA? It's like, no, what did they look like when they were playing? How did they work in those defensive concepts? And how can we compare that to what we're seeing nowadays? And I think that's one thing where, you know, I'm doing it. I'm like my bias towards more modern players. And it was just a very difficult uh, mental exercise to get through. So we're going to start with the big men. And, uh, you know, we'll try to do our best to define what's a big man, what's a wing, what's a guard. Uh, But I think, you know, the big men were mostly in agreement. They're very tall players that uh, play on the interior and around the basket, and there are a lot of centers and quote-unquote power forwards and sometimes power forwards that play center and things like that. 
but the, the big men have always been the king of this category. So let's just start there. If I ask you, Cody, you know, last 15 years, who are the best big man defenders? And we're going to talk about basically like peak, right? That's what we're interested in here. Not, not longevity, not a sustained period of time. The, the, you know, give me a season or something that you see this guy as, as being the best big man defender over this era. Um, you know, who, who is competing for that number eight position for you? Okay, so, you know, I have a few players. I think I, I notched out a solid eight guys where I'm like, I feel pretty confident that they can be in my top eight. Oh, was it the- eight guys that you felt confident with? That's a <laughs> very coincidental number. Okay, anyway, it's continue. It's quite amazing how that yeah. worked out. But then there were a couple of players that I'm like, man, can I get them in that top area? These are players that were viewed very highly because they may or may not have won awards for their defense, but I just couldn't quite push them up to that level. And I think a player that comes to mind right away is someone like uh, Joakim Noah. Okay, yeah. Noah, for me, was uh, also on the cusp of possibly making that top eight. I mean, it's interesting if we did the traditional top ten, who would grab, like, the tenth spot? Um, It could be Joakim Noah. He, okay, so he's here for me because I would describe him as a good rim protector, but not a great rim protector. I would describe him as having some mobility or being able to extend and and have some defensive range, but he's not sort of elite in that area compared to some of these other all-time great defenders that we're going to talk about. And then the other thing about him that stands out is the communication. Even going back to Florida, just like constantly talking and understanding of what teams are trying to do, making sure that whether it's pick and roll or help side or something, he's aware of the threat and saying, hey, look, here's someone coming through. Here's what you should do. I think that has some value as well. So overall, I do think you have someone who I would describe as like a a pretty great defender, but uh, doesn't quite crack the upper echelon of defensive peaks for me that we're going to hit. Yeah, nothing he did in my mind was, like, all-time level stuff. I thought his horizontal defense, especially against, like, forward... Like, LeBron, there's a few possessions where you can go back and find when... when You know, I think the Heat and the Bulls were a nice little matchup between the Heatles era. Like, they really got into each other's faces, and they genuinely didn't seem like they liked each other. And it seemed like Noah really liked switching out onto LeBron. Like, he relished that moment. He's like, bring me LeBron. And, you know, it didn't always work out in his favor, but I thought he looked pretty solid. He's strong. He can move his feet well enough. But, yeah, if he got up to a quicker guard, maybe he'd get blown by a little bit more. I think a pretty high motor type of player like you're saying but just athletically he's not like rising above the square to swat shots and and things like that but uh, overall just like a solid team defender that was also flanked by great defensive players like Ronnie Brewer and, and Lou Alday well yeah well so that's the interesting question he he did lead the league in defensive EPM in 2013 which is pretty impressive near the top of the league in 2014 as well. Uh, EPM, by the way, is estimated plus minus. It's a model that looks at uh, plus minus data. So the scoreboard when you're on the court and when you're off the court, but also incorporates uh, a ton more information and some of the tracking data that we've had available since 2014 that Cody alluded to. It's it's made it a pretty, pretty successful, uh, one of the better, I think, if not the best public one number metric but we don't have a lot of data sometimes so you just look at like a one number metric like that and my question is 
how much of that is helped or hurt, I think in his case helped, by his circumstance. He has a lot of great defenders around him. Um, there is an interactivity on defense that is hard to tease out statistically, but sometimes you see it on the court. A great example is a guard that can take it, uh, that can take advantage of having a shot blocker behind him by gambling for more steals because you are not afraid of sort of funneling those players into the paint. So you take higher risk plays and the penalty for those plays is significantly smaller. In Noah's case, it's, you know, I'm thinking of not just the defensive personnel, but a defensive coach like Tom Thibodeau, who A, has the scheme that could help defenders like this, but B, has the intention to put more defensive personnel on the court most of the time. I mean, even someone like Taj Gibson, I think, is a pretty nice utility defender to swap in as the starter or bench player or whatever. And then you also have your Luel Dangs and Ronnie Brewers and uh, just just a good amount of defensive personnel there usually. How, how much of that do you account for when you're trying to evaluate the statistical s- signal that you end up seeing, oh, this team was first or second in off, uh, defensive rating. This player led the league in a stat like defensive EPM or something like that. That That's where it gets really tricky for me. Yeah, and when you go through most of these guys we're going to talk about, you can look at the roster and be like, all right, how do we separate this guy from the other all-defensive level guys that are surrounding them, right? There's very few of these seasons that are very strong defensively when you're like, oh, that player was alone on defense. Like, everyone basically has somebody else around them. Uh, Just on the team level, too, they posted, like, 99th percentile level relative defensive ratings in in the regular season. In the playoffs, it was about 90th percentile, which is really solid. But, again... Uh, I, I don't necessarily want to fall back on that, but hovering right around 90th percentile is pretty pretty good for me in the playoffs. Okay, I have a couple other sort of honorable mention guys here that I was considering for the number eight position, and I want to I want to bat them around for a second. I want to mm-hmm. throw them in the tumbler and and give them a spin. Um, what do we do with Roy Hibbert? How do you feel about Roy Hibbert? Man. I struggled with him because I feel like, is he, I don't want to say he's like the original drop big, right? Because I think another guy we can talk about definitely was doing some drop big type stuff before this. But to me, he's like the clearest case of like no switchability, really no flexibility on defense. But if you keep him near the rim, just an unbelievable rim protector. Like the block he has on Carmelo Anthony's dunk in, what is that, like the 2013 second round playoffs or something like that. Just incredible stuff. Just a massive human being that, you know, dropped off significantly after that. I just think something that really stood out to me in terms of Roy Hibbert is actually, I thought some of the postseason playoff defenses were better after his peak after he was even like a key member of their defense. So I'm like, I don't know, maybe this is a guy that really is strong in the regular season flanked by guys like Paul George, who, you know, we might be talking about in a future episode. Um, Spoilers. But I don't know. Come on. Spoiler yeah. alert. Paul George can play defense, uh, but a pretty one dimensional drop big guy is what I thought about him. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes it so interesting. Um, and you alluded to it at the top. How much, how much of a difference was there in the olden times, you know, before there were four or five shooters on the court and before the league embraced spacing and three-point shooting, how much of a difference was there between, like, a regular season, funnel everything to the big, this is our scheme defender, like Hibbert and Indiana, and then what you saw in the playoffs? 
and whether you need to be more adaptable in the playoffs, because I think that's been the hallmark of the last six, seven, eight years in the NBA since we've seen things radically change, where if you are limited in that defensive capacity, you still might have a lot of value. I think we'll continue to talk about that as we go through. But, uh, you know, was it as big of a thing back then? How good was Hibbert from an absolute sense once you got to the postseason? I I think he was a monster, but I'm not sure he, he, you know, in my mind at least, can be someone I'm comfortable taking over the over the guys that we're going to talk about in a second. I think my my favorite Hibbert story is still like, I, it was one of the times the Heat were playing the Pacers in the playoffs, and there was this whole hullabaloo about LeBron went into the lab to develop a floater. And he's like, oh, I've been working on this floater all week just to attack Hibbert. He hit like a couple of floaters right away, and the, the commentators were just freaking out. Like, oh my God, he was able to develop this shot in a week. And that's, that's one of my key Hibbert memories, besides the mellow block. That was, uh, if you're keeping score at home, that was Cody's first time sneaking LeBron James into the podcast, number one. <laughs> number two, uh, my favorite part of that story is that, of course, LeBron had a floater basically in high school, so that he developed his one, sh- he developed a shot in one week in like 15 years. It was an incredible, he's like, God, what if I try to floater for the first time ever? I've never done one of those. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another guy I wanted to bring up here before we start rattling off names. What what do you make of the man, the myth, the legend, Marc Gasol? What do you mm. what do you make of him? Man, I I mean who who okay, let me ask you something first. When you think about like the captain of grit and grind grizzlies, who's the first player you think of? I think when people say grit and grind, for some reason I think of Zach Randolph. Okay. Yeah, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about here today. <laughs> um are you asking who do I think is the catalyst of the defense? I mean, just like, who, who, who's the first player you think of when you hear that name? Zach Randolph. <laughs> okay. See, it's Tony <laughs> Allen for me. I, I didn't know if you were going to say Marcus Gasol for that, but when I think grit and grind, it's Tony Allen. Not, I don't really know if that means anything in this conversation. I was just interested. I think of Mark before I think of Tony Allen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, okay. I, you know, Gasol, of course, um, was able to then transition to Toronto in 2019 and help them win a title with a great defense. And I thought his defense was great there. He He's another one of these players to me like Noah, who's kind of a B plus A minus in a lot of critical categories, which makes him someone who can win a defensive player of the year. But we're talking about the absolute best defensive peaks over a generation. And it just falls a little short between the mobility, the shot blocking. Um, he's another guy who talks a lot. He runs, he moves around. He knows where to be. Super, super physical using his body. He's just a, he's just a boss out there. 
but uh, but it's also just a little short for the rest of the guys for me. I think the thing with if we're directly comparing Noah and Gasol, for instance, Gasol's just bigger. Gasol's a massive human being and i think because of that he was probably a better rim protector in the strictest sense of just like making players miss more around the rim just like the girth the length things like that right but horizontally speaking i thought maybe there were a few times where i'm like "Ooh, you probably could have got to that spot just a shade quicker if you weren't quite as big yeah. i think there are a couple of holes like that where i'm like uh i could i could see the holes in the armor where you could maybe attack them. Something that I did like about Marcus Aldo is that between 2011 and 2015, their relative defensive rating was actually either the same or better in the playoffs compared to their regular season. Because if you look at the regular season for the Grit and Grind Grizzlies, it's not quite as explosive as you would expect for, except for maybe like one season. But, you know, when they get to the playoffs, they actually posted some pretty solid, uh, like 90th percentile again numbers. So him being like the core part of that, especially with a guy like Zach Randolph, who's not especially known for his defense at the four. Um, yeah, like you said, not quite enough to get into the top eight, but definitely brings a lot to the table defensively. So there's a ton of guys we could talk about here. There's really only one more for me before uh, mm-hmm. we start We start listing off the best defensive peaks of this era. Um, the last one for me, Cody, is Joel Embiid. How do you okay. feel? Yeah, do you want to pontificate? We've talked a lot about him recently, uh, both in terms of the season and defensive episodes, but um, it's just interesting because I think there are moments where his rim protection and his size and even his motor like ratchet up for little stretches during a game, and you go, oh, man. The players we're going to talk about today, he could easily be right up there with them. But I think some of the weaknesses that we've talked about, the inconsistency, maybe the maybe the effort on the offensive end of the court, the motor for the course of a game, leave him just a little short overall in my assessment. That was exactly my thought. He was actually probably my most difficult honorable mention pick because like the highs, you watch him and you're like, oh my God, you can't name like three better defenders in the last decade. Like he is just owning the paint. The Celtics are just terrified of dribbling anywhere within 10 feet of him. He's chasing people down. His effort's really high. But then, you know, there are moments where that lags a little bit. And I don't know if it has to do with the fact that he's an enormous human being, that he's shouldering a a probably, he's shouldering a much larger load on offense than a lot of these other honorable mentions that we're talking about. So there's a lot of factors that might go into it. Uh, but, you know, if we were talking about, like, if you could get that part of Embiid all the time, you'd easily be in my top eight. But I think the fact that it waxes and wanes to that degree, I, I ended up holding him out of my top eight as well. Yeah, I mean, he's got some monster statistical signals as well in the playoffs in um, LeBron. That's not Cody's LeBron. That's LeBron, the <laughs> statistic from b-ball index they look at some multi-year playoff data so still small sample still pretty noisy but Embiid has the second highest defensive peak of the last decade in that data that's his 2017 to 2019 stretch and his 2019 to 2021 stretch um, would just be right behind that as well so he's kind of looking like he's in the upper echelon there. I think that's looking at stuff like paint defense, you know, defense in the paint, field goal percentage allowed against your shots, things like this. And then even if you look at EPM that we referenced earlier, which is regular season, that same time period, like 2017 to 2019, never gets to number one in the league, but like 96 to 99th percentile, really big numbers every year. So I think he's in this range, but... um yeah, I think when we start talking about these guys, which we will do now without further ado, 
I just think they're they're more potent defenders. Let, let's add one more ado, Ben. Let's add one more ado here. Uh, there's, I think that's clearly how that that phrase is is used here. We're we all know what keep, you meant. Yeah, keep, we're going to keep adding ados here until there are no more further ados. Um, let me ask a player that I I have no idea what you think about him. I don't even know what I think about him because the the video evidence is a little more scant than I would like. Um, 2008 is right near the end of his actual prime. What do you think about Marcus Camby? Well, I think Marcus Camby was someone who could block a lot of shots. Mm -hmm. And I think he could chase blocks or get out of position sometimes because of that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I don't know what else he really brought to the table, especially compared to some of the guys we're talking about, where we're talking about Mark Gasol, Joe Kim Noah, um, you know, communicators, really good positional defenders, guys that might have really good hands or defend the post really well when that was more of a thing, uh, bounce people around on defensive rebounds, things like that. Camby is just not ever really at that level to me. So I just didn't, I didn't really think of him as like a hard cut for the players that we just talked about. Okay. Okay. That's fair. I just really like Marcus Camby. He's sick. Okay. And when I was, he was like at the peak of my high school and the amount of times I was like Marcus Camby jump shot. It's shocking, Ben. Marcus Camby is a, it's just one of the best. Let's well, actually talk. It's funny because I think the, my favorite Marcus Camby is 1999 Marcus Camby. Mm. And uh, the way he played specifically in the Knicks run, the Knicks shocking eight seed run, to the finals when Patrick Ewing was out or injured or things like that. Uh, it was a little two-way action because he was a big that could like attack closeouts and out quick people, but defensively had that shot blocking that we were talking about that was probably a little bit more of a pure value add back then when there was less spacing. I mean, that's the interesting thing, Cody. I think the more you add space to the floor, the more you require a- awareness and horizontal coverage to execute the value on the thing that you want to add value on, the thing you're strong in. So in this case, we're talking about shot blocking. It's like if you just get to stand around the basket more often and you're really long like Camby and kind of spry and quick, then, yeah, it's more like a face value. Oh, look at this game. Look at Camby had five blocks in this game. It was kind of really bothering the penetration of the other team. But you you fast forward all the way to today's game and – Number one, sometimes it's less about just blocking the shot. But number two, that skill, we've seen it with player. I mean, like a player like DeAndre Jordan, right? Mm. Like that skill just does not have the same value relative to the other things you need to do. Because if you're standing on near the paint worrying about your man and you don't rotate or call out a play or get to a position, the whole possession can collapse and you're giving up high percentage offense in the paint or forcing the defense to collapse and giving up high percentage threes. And those things are never picked up by the box score, but you still get your two blocks a game, Hmm. right? So it's a little of that to me, um, although Camby did not play in an era where that was as magnified. But I think that becomes more and more of a big deal when you start saying, what do I need my big man to do to be really successful in, in in winning high-level basketball games. Those are not as magnified because he won Defensive Player of the Year in 2007, I if I'm know, not mistaken. I, I don't know why that happened. Yeah, I, I, I think I do. He averaged three and a half blocks yeah. a game. I think people are like, oh my God, he grabs yeah. steals, he's blocking shots. It's a lot Great. of blocks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he had a lot of blocks. Um, 
I'm number eight. <laughs> Should we do it? I'm nervous. I, I have no more adus, Ben. My my adus are finished. Yeah. This is the, basically just so everyone understands what's happening here. We're twenty something minutes in, and we haven't actually listed these players because Cody's just stalling, and I too am stalling. Okay, at number eight, uh, I went with two thousand and eight Tim Duncan. Oh, okay. Yeah, is he on your list? He was number seven for me. Okay, so okay. right in the same range. Yeah, yeah. that's the same. Yeah. That's for all intents and purposes for defense. That's the same. Um, not peak Tim Duncan, but I think the end of his prime, I think he still, you know, has the length that makes him such an incredible defender, has the positional awareness. Now, I think let's leave aside early Tim Duncan just for the sake of the exercise. Those later years here, not just 2008, not just 2012, 2013, the resurgence, but probably after like 2004, 2005, Duncan doesn't really have the peak level mobility that he had when he was younger. So it's something that we didn't really talk about or notice as much, I feel like, as a basketball community. But like if you take the Phoenix Sun series, for instance, they just attacked him relentlessly in pick and roll. And I think that's the kind of thing that was a precursor to what we see today with drop big men. So this is an interesting selection to me because it's 2008, but I also would classify him as more of a drop big man. I think he's closer in archetype here to what we just discussed with someone like Joakim Noah, for instance. And the separator then in terms of like separating him from Mark Saul, Joakim Noah, things like that is just you think he's better at positional awareness. He's yep. more he's a better rim protector. His yep. length and strength allows him to do a little bit more. Yep. A little bit longer, a okay. little bit stronger. Um, maybe a little bit more aware. But again, but again, Cody, this is where it gets so interesting mm-hmm. because it's hard to see a universe where Tim Duncan isn't a great defender. That's not the point I'm about to make. But it also goes back to Noah where you're like, what would that look like in a non-Spurs system? What would that look like without Greg Popovich? What would that look like without some of the other defenders that they always have there? I mean, they always had great defenders from David Robinson all the way through to Bruce Bowen, Manu Ginobili, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I personally see Duncan as the centerpiece of that for a very long time. But to your question, like differentiating those things, it looks a little better to me, but it's it's hard to be super certain about this. And, you know, the indicators show that he's still a very good defensive player. Obviously, he's number eight on this list right now. But I think 2008... You After that, you sort of see a drop-off of their playoff defense. I think their relative defensive rating in 2008 was like negative 7.7, which is extremely good. After that, it drops off a few until the resurgence again of about, what, 2013, I think, is when he really commits himself, gets into shape. They get like a younger... Uh, Kawhi, Kawhi drafted in 2013? Yep, yep. they get... Yeah. Ka- they, no, Kawhi's the year before. He's the year uh, before. Yeah, they get Kawhi. And they get uh, guys like Danny Green. They had a weird period there where it looked like Mm -hmm. the dynasty was basically going to end. And they had a lot of older players, the sort of there was the Richard Jefferson and Keith Bogans years and things like that. And it didn't quite work. And over the years, they completely repositioned the offense into what you would see as the beautiful game Spurs behind a lot of Parker and Ginobili creation on that end. But you also had a balancing act on defense where, you know, you got solid defensive efforts from Danny Green, uh, 
Tiago Splitter, players like this, and then and then Kawhi. I mean, young Kawhi Leonard. Oh, oh, talk about spoilers. Mm-hmm. Um, we will we will be talking about him at some point. So yeah, that's think- that's my take. My my ultimate point then with that is like even you go up to 2017, which is you know when everyone's like the Spurs win the championship if Kawhi doesn't land on Zaza Pachulia, we see a huge drop off in their playoff defense. Like the Tim Duncan era immediately showcases itself. So even like to the bitter end, Duncan was still a very viable defensive player, and obviously 2008 right past the peak. So yeah, this is not indicative of like what peak Duncan would be. Um, before we go any further. Here's an interesting thought. In your mind, how much value is a player like 2008 Tim Duncan adding on the defensive end relative to the best offensive players that we see? Is this like an all-star offensive player? Is this like the fifth best offensive player in the league, the 15th best offensive player in the league? Or Cody, is it true what they say on the internets and the Twitter? Is it still called Twitter? Is it, <laughs> is it just a variable now? I think you know there's an X in it, so it's Twix. No, that's I think the, it's, it's like no, a candy. That's the close button. In the upper uh, right, they added a close button. That's what okay. that is, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. If you click on it enough, the whole thing just like erupts. It's weird though. I kept clicking on it and it kept opening more tweets. I don't know if they're called tweets. Anywho, um <laughs> like the what they tell me on on the internets is that uh defense sometimes doesn't even really matter at all and your best defenders are you know they're okay it's nice to have defensive value but if you can if you can get buckets and lead an offense to a championship that's all that really matters where where are we in your mind in terms of the value equation wow in in 2008 and duncan i mean we're ranking him i mean you said you had him seventh he's he's quite a great defender um, I, yeah, I still think there's like, I think 2008 to, I don't even want to put a date on it. I think there's an interesting, I don't want to be derogatory here, but maybe a little bit of a dearth of like the highest end defensive talent. You know, I think a couple of the guys that we might talk about in this range are a little past their actual prime. In 2008. So think, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. This is going to be an interesting conversation, I think. But I think ultimately, I don't necessarily know because there wasn't like a a peak of Lajuan in 2008 that I'd be able to compare to. So somebody like Duncan in 2008, I would still say there's a clear gap. Like I think Kobe Bryant's offense in 2008 was significantly more value than Tim Duncan's defense. And when I significantly value, I'm not exactly sure what I mean by that. Well, yeah. But I do know there's a big gap. You're stalling more. If Kobe's won... You know, who's okay? Let's take uh, Paul Pierce or a Gilbert Arenas season in those years or something oh, like wow. that. Was that comparable? Oh, man. I, ge- I, ben, I genuinely don't know. I'm going to punt. I'm going to punt okay. on this because I don't know. Okay. Well, you heard it here. There were no other good defenders in 2008 okay. for Cody to compare in his head this exercise. I, Let's keep going. Ben, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. trying not to spoil anyone that <laughs> might be coming up, Ben. I'm trying not to spoil. Okay. Number seven. Number seven. I think we, I think we just saw it. I think we oh just, yeah. I think we just saw it. Yep. I think I had him at number eight, Ben. Two thousand twenty-three. I think it's Jaron Jackson Jr. He was my number eight, so we just flip-flopped the two. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. The average is seven and a half. That makes me yeah. feel good. Yeah, <laughs> to be the seventh and a half best defender in a top eight list of the last fifteen years since two thousand eight. Uh, Jaron, we've talked about him a lot. We won't belabor the point. 
just extraordinary rim protection instincts and also a defender that can play in this era and switch and has great range and will block shots on closeouts when his heels in the paint and things like that. Just, just really top notch defender. Um, I actually wonder if it's one of those things going forward where we get a larger body of defensive work. Do we look back and say, this is part of an incredible all-time defensive peak and maybe we're actually being conservative here. But it's early, so also, you know, you don't want to overshoot and you don't want to say, I just saw Jared Jackson was the best defensive peak I've seen because I don't really feel that way. So he kind of tucks right in here nicely for me right now. I'm glad you said that because I definitely like pulled back a little bit I was getting really excited. I'm like, am I just getting biased about someone that I just watched who was just incredible during the regular season, even after like Adams went down for a long time? Uh, their defense still looked pretty spectacular throughout the rest of the regular season. Um, I'm not saying I, I'm wishing or cheering for any team, but I would love to see a bigger playoff sample size from this season to see what he was able to do. But I thought he looked solid, uh, pretty solid in the playoffs. He, I think he guarded LeBron directly a few of those possessions because he would often play down to like the four or something like that, and he would have to recover back to protect the rim. So he's not somebody that's just stationed at the rim. And that's something I found extremely impressive is he would be like out on the corner and then all of a sudden he would have to teleport. And that was just his job. It's just like, all right, Jaron, you have to be everywhere right now. And uh, I found that very impressive. Yeah. In the last two seasons, teams have shot 14% worse around the basket when he is considered the primary defender by tracking data that is in the 99th percentile right at the top of the league and he just constantly has that huge signal whatever data you know whatever defensive data you look at of like when he's on the court it is much harder to get easy offense in the paint for the opponent and when he's off the court it gets easier so um Jaron Jackson seven for me do you have anything else to say on him before we move on i can't wait to see marcus smart and jaron jackson on the same team that's gonna be sick oh that's a great point yeah yeah that'll be fun okay do do you think we're gonna have the same not in the same order but do you think we have the same top six i feel like we have the same same top six but your comments earlier about the 2008 season are really throwing me sideways i think you you misinterpreted it i think you misinterpreted what i was saying there what were you saying what were you saying well i didn't want to spoil anyone else from 2008 Okay. okay i see that's I what see. I was saying. I yeah. see. I understand. Yeah. Um, this is actually where I feel like it gets just just really, you know, you're almost splitting hairs. I kind of feel most confident about my top two or top three. But I also mm-hmm. think the, the, the difference in trying to figure out these elite defenders, and we're going to talk about a couple different time periods now as we go through, um, it really just does feel like splitting hairs. I have, if someone came along and said, no, I've, I flipped the order a little bit this way. I, I, I mean, I don't even know if that conflicts with anything in my head about how I think about these players. It starts to get pretty close. So number six for me, actually this five, this five, six conversation really just, really just crushed me. Um, cause I don't know how I feel about this. I, I think I, I think, I'm so gonna, I think I'm going to go Giannis Antetokounmpo. Okay. Number six. Okay. And I'm going to take 2022. I think that was the best defense I saw him play. Um, I'm going to guess you had him higher. I had him at five. You had him at five. Okay. Now I'm yeah. gonna really, we're really going to have to get into it. Who did you have at six? I had Rudy Gobert. That's who I was stuck. I was really <laughs> stuck. Okay. And let's talk this through. Because... Okay. Rudy Gobert, 
I think you got to go an earlier year with Rudy Gobert, mostly for the league. So I'm looking at like 2017 Rudy Gobert, a season like that, okay? Where I think what actually ended up happening is they run, I believe in 2017, they run into the Steph Curry Warriors. And it's like, maybe in the whole of the NBA in 2017, you get to the playoffs, the Steph Curry Warriors and the James, James Harden Rockets are the two teams that are going to really try, kind of potentially puncture the defensive value that Gobert provides. And I think Gobert has a lot of defensive value in the playoffs, but in the regular season, that drop big man thing, we've talked about it endlessly. It's just like a guaranteed top five, top eight defense. He's like a one-man defense unto himself, but you get to the playoffs now, it's all spaced out. It doesn't work that way. But I think in 2017, at that point in time, I think he was literally just unlucky to play in a conference with those guys. And you could just easily, talking about counterfactuals and thinking about simple things that could change how we think about players, you could easily see a universe where he plays in the Eastern Conference, has a tremendous amount of success, doesn't necessarily get to the finals, but maybe they make the second round, maybe they make the conference finals, they have this suffocating New York Knicks-style Patrick Ewing defense that I've been watching all month with the old Pacers games. Cody, don't get me started. And it's like... Then what are these defensive numbers like in the playoffs? Mm-hmm. Because even after 2017, players like Brooke Lopez, uh, Rob Williams, uh, we just talked about Joel Embiid, there have been more traditional drop rim protectors who have massive postseason defensive value. Uh, and as far as I can tell, one of the big differences, they aren't in a situation where they don't have other great defenders around them and keep running into, oh, this guy's a cheat code who is pushing the game forward. You know, Damian Lillard maybe started to do that, but I don't know if I don't know if Utah would have had a huge problem running into a team like Portland back then. I think it really was just bad luck to run into the 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 greatest offense of all time. Let me let me ask you a question. Is Rudy Gobert the best rim protector this century? Uh I mean this century touches like 2000 Alonzo Mourning, it touches 2004 Ben Wallace, it touches 2000 Dikembe Mutombo. Mm-hmm. My my hunch is to say in the regular season he might be. That is my hunch. Yeah. yeah. In the playoffs, because of the era differences, I feel a little uh, less comfortable with that conclusion. But I think I think in the regular season, Cody, over the last 20 plus years, this century. Whenever we decided this century starts in the year 2000 or the year 2001, I, I, uh, that was a deep cut. Um, yeah, I think, I think he's right there. I don't know if I wouldn't pick any of those guys over the other definitively, but I think he's yeah. right there. Yeah. So Gobert is the guy that like I'm really high on because I'm a basketball nerd, but I'm not as high on because I'm also a basketball nerd. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I couldn't, I didn't know how to balance because I think 2017 when they had a solid playoff defense. They had a good playoff defense in 2017. He had good defenders by him. Gordon Hayward, good, strong defensive player. Mike Conley, I think this is past Mike Conley's defensive prime. I think like the 2013, 12, 14 indicators are much stronger for him. Uh, Joe Ingles was a much quicker, stronger guy at that time. So I think they had like a better ecosystem there. But beyond 2017, Ben, the defensive playoff performances for the team 
are pretty weak. And I know, like you said, it's really not fair. Someone like Brooke Lopez is surrounded by like Giannis, Drew Holiday, Eric Bledsoe at certain different times. Uh, Rudy Gobert is just like the entire roll of duct tape. So it's like sort of feels unfair to judge him by the standard when other people didn't have it, but it's also the only evidence that we have of it. So I, I, I really struggled with the Rudy Gobert placement here, and I might feel like I'm even a little bit lower on him based on how godly he is in the regular season. I don't know, man. I don't know. It's, 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 it's really difficult. It's such a great point. Basketball is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. And so we have a tendency, especially on defense when you're a big man, to equate your team performances with your individual ability and your individual impact and value. Um, the historical way out of that is to get something like on-off and say, okay, so Kevin Garnett's Timberwolves, they were a mid-level defense, but when he was on the bench, they were by far the worst defense in the league. So there's a huge signal that he's providing a ton of value. The Gobert situation is even muddier because in the regular season, we actually get the top defense. And without him, they don't look that good. So there's no debate, I think, among anyone that he is a massive, massive value add defensively, a one-man defense in the regular season. Where it gets tricky is in the playoffs. Not only do they not look like a good defense in the playoffs for a number of these seasons, but Gobert's presence doesn't seem to be the thing to even holding them, you know, at a respectable level. It's like, okay, Gobert's on the court and they're giving up 118 points per 100 <laughs> possessions or something. And the other team is just cooking them with pull-up three-point uh, shooters and things like that. So I'm with you, Cody. There's part of me that feels like there's a world where he is the best of this archetype in this era. And that probably has a ceiling, but I don't know if that ceiling is here or a few slots higher relative to the other all-time great defenders. But I also, when I, I got really stuck right here because for whatever reason, maybe it's because he's, uh, you know, so young, Jaron Jackson being below Rudy Gobert and Jaron Jackson's versatility didn't give me as much pause. It's still, maybe, maybe we look back in a year or two and we say, no, Jaron, Jaron should clearly be higher on this list, at least for me. Um, but then I got, to, I got to your guy Giannis, and I was like, wouldn't I rather have Giannis in a playoff series to, to construct a defense around slash respond to different offensive opponents that I'm going to encounter in my run to the title? I just got really stuck. I think, and here's the thing with Giannis, too. Again, it's, it's not fair to equate team defense to a specific defender, especially someone like the Bucks, who's just like slanted towards defense as opposed to how the Jazz were built all those years with Gobert. But man, how you slice it with with Giannis at the peak, like no matter how you take like any single year, three year peaks of defense since 2008, like if you take all playoff teams that have played at least 10 games since 2008 and you sort them by relative defensive rating, the Bucks at the Giannis peak are first, second and fifth. On that list, they have three of the top five defenses, 20, uh, what is it, 2022, 2019, and 2021, and 2020 might have been there. They had one of the best all-time regular season defenses, and then for some reason, the bubble just completely collapsed them. That's a very strange situation that all happened there, but uh, I think, like, every indicator shows that Giannis's flexibility, obviously, like, Drew Holiday, Eric Bledsoe, Brooke Lopez, these guys are all incredible defensive players, but Giannis's ability to go to the five and allow somebody like Bobby Portis to come in and stretch the floor, but also to be at the four and be able to stay 
still cover the rim and chase people down and make literally impossible defensive plays like blocking DeAndre Ayton's uh, alley-oop in the 2021 finals. I think all of that together, like if you want to say like a defensive portability, that aspect of it just gave me a little bit more of a bump over over Gobert on my list. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, and yet it's still... Very sticky for me if we go back to that uh, small sample, maybe a little noisy playoff LeBron data. It is a playoff indicator that we can look at. I mentioned Joel Embiid having the second best defensive peak of the last decade. Giannis is like top 15, top 10. I don't have it off the off the top of my head, but he is up near the leaders there. And Gobert never really gets a signal like that. Again, Cody, the tricky part is another great defender, Brooke Lopez. Mm-hmm. Brooke Lopez is part of those Bucks teams. The, they also had a third great defender every time, mm-hmm. uh, either in Eric Bledsoe or your favorite Drew Holiday. Uh, defensive roster, good defensive coaching. How hard is it for me to see a situation where Gobert, instead of Brooke Lopez, Gobert is the center there? And maybe then don't even worry about Giannis. Just, give, just ship Giannis off to another team. And bring in a good forward defender, okay? Bring in someone who's a little lower than a little lower than Giannis's defensive player of the year run. Do I expect a defense like that with a versatile four and guards like Eric Bledsoe and Drew Holiday and guys like Chris Middleton and the bench play Javon Carter and then Gobert in the middle? Do I expect that to not be a great playoff defense? No. To me, that sounds like it's going to just kick some teeth in and take names and dominate in the playoffs. <laughs> um, so that's where I get stuck because I think we the counterfactual with Gobert feels so extreme to what happened in the real world. Mm-hmm. But that also, to me, is a signal that what happened in the real world is so sort of unexpected. It's such an outlying... What other defenders have to, have to talk about this circumstance? Like even Embiid, who we talked about. I mean, could you, what would it look like? What would it look like if Embiid played with just four players that just couldn't stay in front of anyone. And then instead of being in the East, they were like, here's, have yourself some Steph Curry. Let me introduce you. Let me introduce you to some James Harden. Would you like a serving of Dame Lillard? I just, I just don't see watching hours and hours of film on these guys, how other players would necessarily look better than Gobert in that situation. Even though I think you and I are in lockstep about some of the limitations that he has defensively from the regular season relative to a playoff environment. That's where I get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I think that all makes plenty of sense. And I think based on all of these guys we talk about, I think Gobert's defensive ecosystem is probably the worst of any of them by far, by far, by far. Yeah. The top four for me was the, you had something to say before we jump there. I think we have the same. I just, I just feel it better. Yeah, we do. I, I, we have the same number four. We, no, we have the same top four. I don't know if we have the same number four, but we have the same top four. We have the, we have yeah. the same number four. I can feel it. <laughs> well, this is what I wanted to say before I announce who, the, who that number four is. The top four for me was the easiest. So yeah. when, when we constructed of this exercise, we actually didn't come up with this exercise, our Discord community. Uh, this is the, some of the fun things you can do in the summer, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Our, our Discord community is great, comes up with all kinds of fascinating insights and ideas. And they were talking about this and, and uh, we ended up turning it into an episode. These were the four guys that popped into my head. When you say like, who are the best defenders of this era? You know, we, we cut it off at 2008. You could go back a few years earlier, 2005, they changed the freedom of movement rules. But I don't think that 
there's a ripple effect. 2008's a nice round number for 15 years. These are the four guys that popped into my head. Number four, the first one we'll start with. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go with the year 2011. Yep. Where I think he had a good argument for defensive player of the year is Dwight Howard. Unbelievable, Ben. This is this is content right here. Not even not even defensive player of the year. I think a 2011 Dwight MVP probably should have been MVP. I, I don't know. I, I wrote a whole thing back then about how I would have voted for him for MVP if I had the vote. But also now we've done so much deconstruction of of the MVP where we we are like uh, an item at the menu. We've completely deconstructed the concept of the MVP award. When people ask me about my MVPs from the past, I'm like Dwight Howard. He should no, no one should be MVP in 2011. <laughs> That's the ethical way. Okay. Uh Ben, Dwight Howard, I I also have him at 4. I think this was I probably said this 3 times already, but I think I actually mean it. This was my toughest placement because I felt like putting him at number four would receive the biggest blowback of anyone that we talk about. So I feel like I actually prepared a lot more mean things to say about Dwight Howard. So I'm going to try and only like wait, salt them in a little. Wait a second. Blowback in which direction? I think people would be like Dwight Howard is easily the best defensive player of this list. He won three straight defensive player what? of the years. I, I feel, no, this is what I think people are going to say. I think I think we're going to get a lot of twixes about this, Ben. <laughs> there's no no way. It's gonna no be way. Out there. There's a there's a strong South Florida contingent. Of, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, of people who I know. I uh, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I just I, he, I would be stunned. I would be stunned. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Watch going back, watching some Dwight Howard stuff. Um. I think he has the tools to be the best defensive player of the century. Of like, the century. Yeah, athletically, it, it, it is sh- I, I don't know if anyone ever has more blocks over his own teammates, right? Like, well, his teammates <laughs> like contesting, and he comes over and blocks over them. I think he has the highest apex blocks Wait, of this century. Okay, He's, okay. It's, it, it's unbelievable. It's man. Will Chamberlain-esque. I, yeah. I, yeah, I think, I think we should talk about two things on that point. One, the dunk contest. It feels like such a silly data point to reference the dunk contest in the middle of a top eight players of the last 15 years podcast. Um, but when he went up and tapped the sticker on the dunk contest on the top of the backboard, that was basically a defensive announcement. That's what that was. Yeah. And everyone thought that too. Like, I'm not, this isn't a retrospective thing. Everyone was like, oh, so you have to shoot over. 12 feet six in the paint when this guy jumps because the, the thing with Howard as well is it's not like he's doing a free throw line dunk like Michael Jordan where he ramps up a lot of speed and transfers that horizontal energy into vertical energy he can't run that fast so yeah. like that's just Dwight jumping okay that's one the dunk contest two in the 2008 season uh I flew back east and I was sitting courtside at a Celtics Magic game, and I, I've, t- I've talked about the benefits of courtside. If you've, if you've never been able to sit courtside, it's just you can feel things with the size and the speed of the athletes that's hard to get anywhere else. And so I'm like two rows behind the basket where the Magic are warming up. And before the game, there's some mingling going on, and I'm talking to some people. And so I'm right behind the backboard, okay? So literally I have to look through the basket stanchion but the backboard itself is clear. You can see through the backboard. And every 20 seconds, a smiling face shows up over the rim 
on the backboard, this goofy, filing, smiling face. Dwight Howard is dunking the ball with like his head over the rim in warm-ups. I don't even understand to this day what I saw. It doesn't really entirely make sense to me. It's just like, lay up, dunk, 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 lay up, face. <laughs> lay up, dunk, 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 <laughs> face. So, Cody, one million percent, if you didn't experience it, the paint presence vertically that this guy had as a fluid sort of um, slippery athlete was at that point in time, just absolutely astounding. It, it was unbelievable. I think I'm, I'm going to bring up another dunk because I think it's, it, it shows off his athleticism. There's a, I, I don't remember exactly when it was. I think it might've been earlier in 2011, but it's a fast break alley-oop and whoever it is throws it way behind him. Like it is so far behind him. It might be, the fullest extension alley-oop dunk I've ever seen. And I think that's really indicative of just like his block radius, right? Like nothing was ever safe when he was nearby. And I think even like beyond that, I think he was pretty solid with steals too, like in terms of like racking up a good amount of steals. So he was creating turnovers too. Uh, One thing that like really shows up too when you go back and watch him, Ben, he loved volleyball spiking that thing. Like he loved throwing that ball out of bounds. And there's actually an interview with the Orlando Sentinel where he says, they told me to grab them, but sometimes blocking a shot and sending it out of bounds shows a team it's not going to be easy to come in the paint. See, see, this is <laughs> this is why I think the blowback might go in the other direction that mm. we have him too high. Because there's all this kind of extra stuff. I know you have something on goaltending that I want to talk about in a second. <laughs> but for instance, I believe it was a Sloan paper that looked at how many of your blocks are recovered by your teammates versus the other team retaining possession. And on one end of that spectrum, you have like Tim Duncan, who's doing the Bill Russell, like keep the ball in play, softly recover it. Your teammate gets it. You start a fast break. I think on the extreme other end, I don't know if he was first or whatever, but I think on the extreme other end was Dwight Howard, where you're like the, the magic aren't retaining possession. Yes, it's a block, which means by definition a missed shot, but the ball is going back to the other team more often. And some of that is from things like just spiking it out of the bound, out of bounds. Why are you spiking it out of bounds? It's not the best play. Uh, but of course, you know, Dwight has an inclination that you gotta, you gotta send the message. Actually, I have some numbers on that. So if you look at block recovery percentage, which I think PBP stats has, if you look at like this last season for guys like Anthony Davis, Brooke Lopez, Evan Mobley, they're all above like 64%. So 64% of the time or more when they block the shot, their team retains possession. So, so like two thirds of the time you keep it or yeah. you get you get it. You, yeah. Exa- yeah, exactly. Yeah. In 2011, Ben, Dwight Howard's block recovery percentage was 48%. 48%. And you can see it. You go back and watch any of those match games. He's loading up. Just loading up. And then I, <laughs> I, on the goaltending yeah, conversation. Goal yeah, some goaltending numbers. On yeah. the goaltending conversation. Yeah. In 2011, he had 186 blocks. 52 of were goal, not 52 were goaltends. He also had 52 goaltends so in 2011. Goaltend like every three blocks. Yes, every three and yeah, a half that's, blocks. That's no good. He had a goaltend. Just yeah. just for reference, Brooke Lopez this last year led the league in blocks at 193. He had five total <laughs> goaltends, which works out to 38 and a half blocks yeah. per goaltend. Anthony Davis 
Anthony Davis. I don't know if I have this number right out in front of me. I don't have it here, but I'm pretty sure between like 2017. You don't don't have the number. You're just going to yell Anthony Davis. This one (laughs) shocked me so much that I committed it basically to memory. But between, I think, 2017 and 2018, Anthony Davis had a goaltend every 90 blocks. Yeah. Every 90 blocks. Dwight Howard is 3.5. To put it another way, Dwight Howard had .94 goaltends per 100 possessions. There we go. In the the same year, Ben, in 2011, Tim Duncan had .02 goaltends per 100. Tim Duncan doesn't goaltend. Uh, You have to get above the rim to actually commit a goaltending violation, and that's not. he doesn't need to jump to block shots. He just sticks his hand right out when you're shooting the ball. Okay, so we can use the goaltending thing to make the point – how have we been talking about this for an hour already? Cody, this this is why we should have done five. This is why we should have done top five. Oh, no. Okay, so I think goaltending makes this point. When we talk about rim protectors, sometimes the things we think about that have value get smushed down to like a single dimension. They get shrunken to like very good shot blocker, can jump very, very high, you know, the Marcus Camby thing. And then even with that said, we go okay, let's talk about positioning. Let's talk about communication. Let's talk about post-defense. There's still a lot of like subtle nuance in being a little bit better or a little bit worse in each of those categories, and they add up. So Dwight Howard is not someone that I would say has poor awareness as a paint defender. Uh, Mm -hmm. Stan Van Gundy has called him an incredibly smart player when we talked to him last year. And Stan Van Gundy himself built a great defense around Dwight Howard that really took people off guard because like Hito Turgaloo at your forward, Richard Lewis at your forward, they didn't seem like they would be capable of building a defense around his shot blocking, much in the way that the Jazz probably built a one-man defense around Gobert's paint presence. But there are little things with Howard that I think fall short compared to specifically the three guys I have ahead of him and some of these other players, even the Joakim Noahs of the world and things like that. And this is just one great example where goaltending, once every 100 possessions, Cody, I mean, I'm sure there's some silly goaltends where the ball was going to go in. But if you look at that and you start running the numbers on just how valuable something like that little concept of goaltending could be, if those are like 50-60% shots, you instantly turn them into 100% shots. So you're talking about like a point every 100 possessions or 0.8 points every 100 possessions just because of your judgment about what to block and goaltending. And then, of course, there's other little things like how often are you chasing blocks or is your is your reaction to paint threats a little bit slower? Are you 80% the communicator of someone else? So this is why I was, I was thinking that we were going to get blowback for having them too high despite the three defensive player of the years, because I think some of the other players that we've seen or even some of the other players that we talk about, they lack some of his vertical rim protection that he has that was just so incredible and, the you know, a highlight reel unto itself. But I feel like the reason he's not the best defender of this century is all these other little subtle areas that can, yep. that can make a difference. Yeah, and I think that's what's really interesting is when you start diving into those, it really reveals themselves. Uh, I think we have the same number two and three, but I'm not positive in the order. Well, you've been absolutely on a roll today. So uh, (laughs) who two two and three, I literally have in the notes as just like question mark could go either way. I think we'll we'll stick with the spirit of what we've been doing and just go like 
gun to my head, number three, I'm going to go with Anthony Davis. That's my number three as well, Ben. It's alarming. It's yeah. alarming. Um, no, number two, who do you have? I had, I had Draymond Green. At Draymond Green, I have number two. Yeah, okay. as well. What year? What year? The question is for these guys: What's the year? For me, it was 2023 or 2020. Anthony Davis. I kind of am leaning more 2023, which is weird because I think he was more versatile in 2020. I don't know what to make of that in my head. Maybe if I rewatch them, I would get a much clearer picture. And then with Draymond Green, I think the really interesting thing about Draymond Green that the public hasn't seemed to really had any discourse about that I've seen is you could pick a year like 2016 where he's absolutely, absolutely just kills it in stats. Um, although I think in 2017, even he was number one in EPM and he wasn't number one the year before, but you could pick one of those years, 2016, 2017, or to me, the 2022 tour de force that we saw last year was basically at that same level. And there's some trade-offs, you know, he's younger. You could say he's a little quicker, but, uh, man, that basketball computer in 2022 and the way that defense was a little bit more, it was like right on the cutting edge, the things they were doing defensively in 2022. And it was so much of it was coming from his communication systems, his ability to plug up holes, his ability to be versatile and read threats. And he's just, just one of the all-time great sort of quote-unquote defensive IQ threat detection systems that I've ever seen the hands, the hands on the ball, the hands on entry passes, um, the ability to block shots at his height with a seven foot plus wingspan or whatever it is, but still have those dancing bare feet at six, six and just insane horizontal coverage guard, literally positions one through five. I mean, if you're a point guard and you get switched onto by Draymond Green, you cannot be excited about that. Like in the finals, the Celtics were up to one and they were feeling pretty good. It was right there to tip toward the championship, uh, maybe it was the game before. Now I can't remember. Maybe it was one nothing, and it was game two. But they were just like, Draymond, why don't you go guard Jalen Brown and just make it so he can't dribble anywhere? And Draymond's like, okay, that's cool. I'll do that. Uh, just absolutely incredible to me. Uh, I'll start with, with Draymond Green here. I think of anyone that we talked about today, there's, there's really no one else where you would start the possession with them defending the other team's point guard. And that's like literally, like even this past season during the regular season, this isn't like a break glass in case of emergency kind of thing. Like when they played the Blazers during the regular season here, there were possessions where they're like, all right, Draymond, you're going to start on Damian Lillard. That's mind blowing. You, you can't do that. You can't even do that with Giannis, who we view as a pretty mobile guy. Jaron Jackson's a mobile dude. You wouldn't be starting him on the other team's point guard. So the fact that he can switch around there. Um, let, let me ask you this. These are always fun questions, Ben. Fill in the blank. He's the best one through five defender since who? Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Know. I have. I have a name, but I'll save it. I. I think. <laughs> I think we. We. We maybe have the same name. But, I have a name, uh, but I'll save it. But I, it's. It's so interesting because I think for most of NBA history, real versatile uh, defending was about defending three or four positions. It was very hard to truly defend five positions. So, okay, okay, I'll give you a name. I'll give you okay. a name. I know you want to play LeBron Bingo and say LeBron James. I know that's I actually, what you want to I do. I actually don't. I actually don't. Okay. I, I, I don't want to say Okay, that. so the name I'm going to give you, just to the spirit of your question, okay? 
is Scottie Pippen. That's okay. the name I'm going to give you because it wasn't as sort of popular to actually have someone like Scottie Pippen guard fives in that era, but his post defense was good. He was strong enough not to be completely overpowered, and his post-denial defense was from another planet. It was really hard. Like, if he switched on to, like, Patrick Ewing in the post, and you're like Greg Anthony, and you're like, oh, I'm going to throw an entry pass to Patrick <laughs> Ewing. It was like 50% of the time, Pippen was going to steal that entry pass because he has this technique where he bumps you, bumps you, sags off you, and then slides in front of you, almost like you're watching someone practice judo or jujitsu. Right. He's like waiting, 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 jumps in front. Um, I think that combined with the fact that there are just obviously playoff series where he's like, go guard the point guard and completely make it impossible for him, <laughs> but also guard anyone else in any other position. So I think the spirit of your question is an answer like Scottie Pippen. OK, I think that makes sense. By the way, I w- I've watched like a couple of 90s Bulls games. Just a couple. Scott- <laughs> just, just a couple. Recently, I should say, like in the last week, uh, Scottie Pippen's like combination of size and athleticism is just it it doesn't actually make sense he's a it, he's a freak he's a freak it, it is he we, doesn't look normal like running around the court as smoothly as he does should we do a podcast episode <laughs> on like the freakish athletes because i think Ooh. some i think sometimes they yeah. go under the radar like this like pippin when you actually go back like you said there is an athletic component that that's what that's one of the reasons why i'm so excited about a guy like Bilal Koulibaly who is still so young he might not even really uh, you know get entrenched in the league he might, he might not really have a career but when you see a guy that's like 6'8 that can move like that it's just extraordinary and yeah. in you know small ball pippen in this era playing playing the center <laughs> i mean just Look out. So we need wh- to find an excuse to talk me down. About. Yeah. Yeah. We, we need to find an excuse to talk about. Oh, I want to talk about Anthony Davis. First. Anthony Davis. He's, he's pretty good. Yeah. I, I have a question about him because. Oh, actually, sorry. Before, before you do Anthony Davis, I just want to uh, close this, close the circle on this. Draymond Green. We talked about some of those playoff LeBron stretches earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Draymond Green has the best playoff three-year run in the LeBron database defensively by a mile, which means Draymond Green has the second best run. Draymond Green has the third best run. Draymond Green has the fourth best run. And after Joel Embiid, Draymond Green has the sixth best run. Um, I just, I, I actually, I think we're, we should do the last guy and then we should spend a second just talking about who with all this uncertain we, uncertainty we, cons- we would consider for number one, because I think Draymond Green is in my head, you know, he easily could be the best defender of the last 15 years. Uh, I think easily is a tough one for when we get to number one, but I think the fact that Draymond Green's a little bit shorter, I think that just holds him back. I just think, like, physically he can't hold up compared to number one. But in in this era, has that been an issue? I think an issue is framing it incorrectly, because I think if we have the number one in this era, like, it's... It's unbelievable. You're well, not, not saying it's an issue. All of a sudden, right, you're like, we're this not moving. Make sense. We're, we're not moving the number one into this era. We're looking at relative to the time they played it. But okay, are you saying that like Draymond's defensive impact is the same as this other player at his time? You no, know, I'm saying it's very close. And I'm saying okay. in my head, the possibility, the high end range of Draymond Green's tail. Like you look at some of this plus minus data and the way he moves the needle. And what you just said is, well, not quite the same shot blocking. Well, he's a little smaller, so he's giving something up. 
But also, how do we really know how valuable it is to have a coach on the floor who can see every play before it happens and then have the ability to not only block shots, but be a great man defender, uh, be great in passing lanes, and he's quick enough to go chase a shooter off an exit screen into the corner, realize at the last second someone's cutting from the other side of the court and they might be open. So he pushes his teammate out and says, you worry about that, and then runs 18 feet across the court in like under a second and blocks the shot at the rim. How, how do we know that we've quantified that properly? Okay, let, let me ask you this then. Do you think that Draymond Green this century has the best defensive court mapping? I think it's top, him. Him. He's number one, and there's one and two. One and two. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Let's let's yeah. talk about Anthony Davis before we get <laughs> get toward. I just want to ask you one question. We talked about Anthony Davis a lot during the playoffs, uh, but twenty. Like he, I think you you literally, not literally, but you said Bill Russell. He was Bill Russell esque defensively. It was just unbelievable his tour to force this playoff run. So I think that's a big reason why we have him so high. But I feel like when you go back to say. Because uh, I think, like, if you look at an elongated peak, like 2017, 2018-ish, he's he's uh, quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Apparently, yep. I the Midwest in me pronounces the word lith, and everyone else in the world says lithe, which is really strange to me. I actually asked other Midwesterners. They're like, no, it's pronounced lith. So whatever. I'm going to keep saying lith. Midwesterners get at me. How do you pronounce L-I-T-H-E? Anthony Davis was much more lith at that time. So what sorts of things do you think make him a higher peak defensive player now than say when he was teammates with Drew Holiday. Well, I think they're almost different things. That's what's that's what's so interesting in my head because I think if you made a checklist on paper, the 2021 sounds like it's obviously the better one, but he's stronger now and his size at seven and a half foot wingspan somehow in today's game with the additional spacing, the additional shooting, the additional movement, when we got to the playoffs this season or at certain times in the regular season when he was healthy and, and you know, it was fourth quarter of big games, his size relative to the smallness on the court around him stood out to me more than it did in the past. In the past, it was more about, oh, he can extend and switch and guard perimeter players. His hips are really quick. Oh, he's so long. His closeouts can block shots on the outside. And he's a good interior defender. He's a great interior defender. But this season that relative to the league thing, because he's quick enough, because he's live, (laughs) uh, right? Because of this malleability, his shot blocking and his paint presence popped in such a way. Let's put it this way. We have Jaron Jackson on this list. When, When he started taking over that series, it was like, oh, there's like a super Jaron Jackson on the court as a paint protector. And that just blew my mind because Jaron Jackson's got the same length. His instincts are extraordinary. We know this particular season, his shot blocking numbers were near record level pace when you look at like percentage of two point shots blocked and things like that. It was crazy. But in the Memphis series and in the Warriors series, Anthony Davis felt like a titan. He, he felt like a... Uh, uh, I'm thinking of um, the, the TV show Attack Attack on Titan, which is literally a Titan, and I'm realizing no one no one watches that show. No one knows what that is. He felt like a giant, right in the paint. It's an anime, isn't it? It's an yeah, it's an anime. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know, know what it's you're about, about. It's about yeah. giants. They have very. That's what he felt like. He felt okay. like Andre the Giant in the paint. People know who that is, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, it's a different. A, yeah. It's a different thing. It's a different thing, and I feel like relative 
to this era. Now, a lot of people, uh, I think, went a little crazy after the Denver series where it's like, the greatest offensive player of all time couldn't be stopped by Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is no good. Um, I didn't see that at all. Once again, you could feel Anthony Davis's presence the second they tried stuff like LeBron James, you guard, you guard Jokic, and we'll move AD off ball so he can terrorize people from the weak side and things like that. So I don't have the answer, Cody, but that's why to me it's it's a it's a close thing. It's a different a different kind of impact relative to the playoff environment that I saw. Okay, I think that makes sense. Is it time to talk about Brook Lopez now? <sighs> Number one. <laughs> 2023 Brooke Lopez <laughs> I mean the, um, the rim protection was was out of the there was a Rockets game at one point in the year where just like the first quarter was one of the best defensive performances stop it stop it stop it we have to finish this podcast who's still listening one hour and 10 minutes of defense so number one for me you asked me a second ago who is the best ever or the best this century at what identifying threats court mapping court mapping yeah defensive court mapping yeah defensive court mapping um i think draymond probably is number one at defensive court mapping which is a slightly different thing than identifying threats Mm. i think this is probably if i had to pick the best player of the modern times at identifying threats and that would be kevin garnett yeah uh Absolutely. And in this case, we have the cutoff at 2008. 2008 was a defensive tour de force. He won defensive player of the year. And just like the way I've described him before is a T-cell, meaning he's the defensive immune system that the second something is not where it's supposed to be, he knows. And it just sometimes it doesn't even make any sense. I'm not even sure he knows. Like if you asked him <laughs> about it, he just starts move. He just starts sliding toward. He's like, uh oh, there's a player who doesn't have the ball who's cutting. I'll just slide over there and steal it. So these amazing instincts for where to be positionally. Also, you know, like seven feet tall, athletic, can block shots like a maniac if he's if he's there. But very horizontal, great hands super aware of everything that players are trying to do. And uh, I think I have it in his Greatest Peaks video, but man, that 2008 finals against a great Lakers offense and just some of the possessions that he has really against Kobe Bryant, where he's not even guarding Kobe Bryant, but he's just the, the main presence in the pick and roll, much in the same way we just talked about Anthony Davis being a presence in the paint when he's not guarding the basketball. Uh, it was extraordinary to me, Cody, and I think it, basically defined that series in many ways. And I think Garnett is probably the best. I think he's probably the best pick and roll defender I've ever seen. Hmm. Yeah. In any, yeah. Just as the big, either as the big man in the pick and roll or as the third man who is a big understanding the read and the help and the positioning. I, I, I think I'd have a hard time picking a better pick and roll defender than him. I think what's also really interesting about Kevin Garnett, Draymond Green, Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, you know, Anthony Davis is a little different from this. None of these guys are averaging more than two blocks a game. I think Kevin Garnett, it's a little shocking, but Kevin Garnett only averaged at least two blocks twice in his career. And when you go and watch, it's just like everything else 
I, I don't even know how to feed into it. Sometimes he just like plays defense in a way where he almost doesn't allow the other team to get near the basket. It's not quite like a Rudy Gobert type of rim deterrence where like they're driving in, they're like, oh my God, we can't get near there. It's like, like you said in the pick and roll, like the pocket pass doesn't quite get there or the overhead pass gets deflected or he's making a rotation over here where it's like, well, I guess we got to run a different play now. So there's just like so much pre-work that goes into his defense. And, you know, the thing that to me separates him from someone like Draymond Green is that he's, what did he like to say? He was 6'11 and... Uh, 6'12 or something? Yeah, yeah, he was 6'12 or 6'13 or something like that. He's a legit like seven footer out there. Long arm span. I think somebody like Anthony Davis has a longer arm span from him. But just like fluid athlete, can read everything and just blows up plays all the time and is able to basically get wherever he wants, whenever he wants. Yeah. Uh, a great example. I mean... This whole idea of shot blocking versus deterring. I think we've talked about it before with someone like Tim Duncan. Historically, the shot blocking numbers are this big barometer where you go, well, if you only block two shots a game, how great can you be at protecting the paint? And then, of course, we've had more data over the years that shows us, well, wait a second. Uh, We can map it up to the film. Wait a second. You run pick and roll and the two defenders go to the ball or something. Maybe that's the coverage. So now I want to hit either the roll man or I want to hit that guy on a pop. And the pass never comes because Kevin Garnett's already there. I don't understand it. But then there's also no opening anywhere else. Like he, his instinct to move and take away what you want to do and then realize you've moved off that pass and then you go somewhere else and then he's already back. The, the, that's the thing that jumped out to me on film. Um, even his earlier days in Minnesota, like... It's the second action, Cody. So he takes away the first action, and the recovery is just unbelievable. So it's a move and recovery, move and recovery. And, um, you know, when you add that up, just make shot quality much harder. It prevents defensive breakdowns. It takes away the high percentage stuff. And so, sure, you don't get to see his shot blocking exploits from the weak side all the time because there's just no pass. There is just no weak side. There's no weak side. He's already there. He's teleported everywhere. And that's why he just feels like a T-cell to me, and if I had to pick, I would say he's the most valuable defender of the last 15 seasons. And let's go back to this hard question that you've had some time to think about. Kevin Garnett. Oh, my God. Pick him. Where does his defensive value compare to a top offensive player? Is it... In in 2008. Sure, in 2008, yeah. I... Ben... I, I genuinely, I genuinely don't know how to answer that right now. Off the top of my head, I can't give a good answer. I would feel bad for the people that I would just be saying something. What would you say to it? Well, what, I'm wondering. I'm wondering be? how you calibrate this in your head. To me, uh, if you took the best offensive player that season, it's Kobe Bryant or Chris Paul or somebody like that. They would be clearly a level ahead, just from their offensive value. But. Those guys are outliers. Those guys are all-time great players. I think by the time you get to the fourth or fifth best offensive player in the league, you're probably talking about Kevin Garnett's value on defense. And I think that's something that uh, is controversial to a lot of people. I think the idea that you could be a totally neutral offensive player in 2008 and like Kevin Garnett, just totally neutral offensive player, take away most of his offensive skills and make him an absolute neutral for a typical starter and then give him this defensive value. That to me would be about the same level of player, whether it's like an all NBA level player or something like that, 
as like the fifth best offensive player in the league who himself was a neutral defensive player. And I'll even add the other great thing about defense is you don't need the ball. So you don't have to worry as much about fit. And especially when you're as versatile as KG, you can play the four, you can play the five, you can get crazy then and guard wings. You can switch out. You can play every coverage under the sun. He can protect the basket. He's rangy. Um, I, yeah, that's the way I think about it. So I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at some of the 2008 players. Like you said, Chris Paul, Kobe Bryant. I'd say LeBron's offense is still better. Yep, that's three. D- Darren Williams had quite the Western Conference Finals run, if I remember. I think he was quite the pick-and-roll wizard. That's I think Darren four. Williams' offense. That's four. Except- I think we're starting to get in the range. Yeah, who's five? Ma- Manu Ginobili, I would probably take his offense over it. Really? You'd take Manu Ginobili's offense clearly over Kevin Garnett's I didn't defense. say clearly. I said I would probably take probably. it. Probably. Wow. Oh, Steve, Steve Nash, Ben. Steve Nash. Yeah, that would be to me. That would be the guys. It would. It would be in that particular season. It would be Kobe, Paul, Nash, LeBron. I think you start to get Darren Williams. KG is an interesting conversation. Um, and you. Had I don't one know why I'm. I'm looking at Paul Gasol right now, and I'm like, all right. I think I'd probably take Kevin Garnett's defense over Paul Gasol's easy offense. Easy. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting question. That's what I'm saying. I think. Oh. I think when you are talking about an all-time level defender. It's the same thing with what we've seen from Draymond Green. Like, Draymond Green is extraordinarily good. And when his offense was better, I think overall that made him, you know, a top 10 level player probably. But it's almost all because of this crazy defensive value. And we still think, oh, individual offense drives the game. And it does. But I do think when you talk about the great defenders, um, you are usually only talking about a couple offensive players that can clearly outpaced them i think my point i was making earlier when you thought i was like dissing kevin garnett about 2008 it's like kevin garnett is clearly like the best defensive player in 2008 right clearly best defensive player and then you know he was in this list so clearly tim duncan is right behind him but then i feel like there aren't many players that like approach that level like i feel like the high end of defensive ability was maybe a little bit lower because we have these two guys, Tim Duncan's little past his prime. Kevin Garnett is at the tail end of his defensive prime at this point, And it just felt like there weren't like the defensive stalwarts uh, all at one time, like between 2008 and like 2013 ish. In terms of just guys who could be candidates for a list like this. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think so. Um, I, I think for posterity, it, it would be nice to wrap up with just some of the voting 2008, Kevin Garnett, one defensive player of the year, but this is what fascinates me, Cody. He won, he got 90 first place votes. That's only 80% of the vote share. Marcus Camby got 12 first place votes. Oh my god. The blocks. Uh yeah, the the block. He averaged 3.6 blocks per game <laughs> to, to No, but you're laughing, but there was a lot of discussion I, in I basketball. Know. There was a lot of discussion in the media at the time about kind of selling people on what was happening with Kevin Garnett's defense. And, you know, Tom Thibodeau wasn't a household name, but it was the the term that kept getting used to try to communicate why Garnett was valuable and why you couldn't necessarily see this in the stat sheet, or you, you clearly couldn't see it in the stat sheet, was the defensive quarterback or the middle linebacker. He's the middle linebacker of the defense. He's the guy with the little radio in his helmet telling everyone what to do, and that's very valuable. But it was not a commonly held idea at the time, and this was before YouTube channels and film breakdowns and things like that. So 
he won in a clear vote, but Marcus Camby got 12 first place votes. Our friend Shane Battier with 11 first place votes. Hmm. Uh, Bruce, ba- Bruce Bowen. Bruce Bowen, Cody, got 36-year-old Bruce Bowen, got seven first place votes over Kevin Garnett in 2008. Also, Cody has the most quizzical look. What, did, his... did Bowen had more votes than, than Duncan? Oh, yeah. Duncan had zero first place votes. Jesus. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have jo- to twix about that. Josh Smith, Dwight Howard, Tyson Chandler, and Chris Paul all got first place defensive player of the year award votes hmm. over Kevin Garnett uh, in 2008. In 2011, for... Dwight Howard, he won with 100. That was his third in a row, I think, right? He won 114. Uh, he had 98% of the vote share. 98% of the vote share. So that that was actually one where I made a case back at the time. for. I thought KG had an amazing defensive season in 2011. I don't really have a problem with Dwight getting it, but I thought KG had a, had a great case. He got one vote. Uh, Grant Hill... In Phoenix, thirty-eight-year-old Grant Hill. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just, Absolutely. I'm, I'm just the messenger. I'm just the messenger. Thirty-eight-year-old okay. Grant Hill in Phoenix got a Defensive Player of the Year vote. Uh, it gets crazier. Keith Bogans in Chicago got a Defensive Player of the Year vote. Joe Kim no. Noah got one, and uh, Chuck Hayes for the Houston Rockets. God, I love Chuck Hayes. Had two uh, Defensive Player of the Year votes. By the way, Dwight Howard. Blocked 2.4 shots per game that year. And I think that was around the time you started to have a lot of internet influence with blogs and new information coming into the game and newer data and analytics and defensive ratings starting to become more valued compared to like, how many points per game does this this team give up? Um, were there any other years we wanted to hit for some of these players that we talked about? Well, l- let me let me ask you something here. Do you think... When do you think Kevin Garnett's defensive peak is? Do you think it's actually this 2008 Defensive Player of the Year, or is it like 2004, 2003? I like the I like three, four. If I had to pick, um, I think they're all really close. But I think I think if you took 2003 or 2004 Garnett and you put him in that Celtics situation, the, the, it would have been even a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, he was he was amazing. It was a little quicker. Um, I think just that was the athletic sort of best balancing point between his size, his speed, his strength, his intelligence out there and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 2012. By the way, Cody, by the way, this is called the Akeem Olajuwon Trophy. The Defensive Player of the Year. Yeah. I saw that when I was looking this up. Yeah. It's it's called the Akeem Olajuwon Trophy now. Um, 2012, what you're alluding to, Tyson Chandler won with 51% of the vote share. Almost didn't even get a majority of the vote share. 45 first place votes for Tyson Chandler. He averaged 1.4 blocks and 0.9 steals. And I think this was very much coming off of like a 2011 award that he won in 2012. They're like, (laughs) you were actually the second best player on the Mavs championship team and super duper important to their defense. And they're not as good this year. Um, We're going to give you this award. Sergi Baca. Oh yeah. 22 year old Sergi Baca was second with 41 first place votes, averaging, wait for it, 3.7 blocks per game. Sergeant Nasty. Yeah. Uh, there are fewer, fewer crazy votes here. The votes, the votes are starting to get, I think, 
more respectable. Lou Aldang got one, Andre Iguodala, Sean Marion, Tony Allen, Kevin Garnett, and LeBron James got seven first place votes. Okay. Yeah. In 20, 2012. Okay. Any any we others you want Tyson to see Chandler. before we I get feel, out of here? I feel like we didn't really talk about Tyson Chandler because he's just like a classic drop big paint protector, but he's not quite as good as the other classic drop big paint protectors. Yeah, we talked very about. good defender, very good defender, but I don't think quite as good as the as the tier we got into today. Draymond Green, two thousand seventeen, he won Defensive Player of the Year with eighty seven percent of the share. Gobert got okay. sixteen. Kawhi Leonard got eleven. That's it. Nobody else. The, day, the days of dispersed voting, the days of Grant Hill picking up, picking up votes are gone. How many did Gobert have? Did he have three? Yeah, he how, had three. How three many defensive, uh, defensive player of the years has he yeah. won? Yeah, I think it was three of them. Were any unanimous? I feel like 27, no, not 2017. One of them could have been unanimous. Gobert, you mean yeah. unanimous voting? Yeah. Uh, in 2019, he got 82% of the share. Giannis got 56%. He was second. In 2018, Gobert got 92%. There's a lot of votes in, 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 uh, what year did I say this was? 2018? Whew. Look at this. Joel Embiid, Anthony Davis, Paul George, Al Horford, Horford, Draymond Green, and Drew Holiday all got votes. And in 2017... Uh, well, sorry, 2017 was a Draymond Green. When was his other defensive player of the year? 2021 or something? I thought it was like, it wasn't sick. No, no, that would have been Kawhi. I thought he won three. Did I lie to you? No, he won three. This is the best content. Oh, 21. You're right. When you can't remember. Yeah, 2021. He won uh, 93% of the vote share. Ben Simmons. Oh. Ben Simmons with 15 first place votes. Um all right, that's it. That's uh, so we we had in our in our big eight. We had Tim Duncan, two thousand eight. Tim Duncan, two thousand twenty three. Jaron Jackson. I don't know what to do with this group. Two thousand twenty two. Giannis Antetokounmpo, two thousand seventeen. Rudy Gobert. Our big four. Dwight Howard, two thousand. I picked eleven. Anthony Davis, two thousand twenty or two thousand twenty three. Draymond Green. Pick a year. Any, anything between 2016 and 2022 where he's in good shape. And uh, number one was 2008, Kevin Garnett. Uh, if you want to support this program, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. I mean, that's where the idea for this podcast germinated. So if you didn't like it, I think you should blame them. Um, and if you loved it, then you should get in there and, and contribute uh, probably to even better ideas going forward in the future. It's also just the best way to support us. Thanks as always for listening all the way through. And of course, I hope you are having a great day.